Welcome to the Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast designed to explore the intersection between meditation, mindfulness, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm interviewing Rebecca Crane. Rebecca directs the Center for Mindfulness Research and Practice at Bangor University in the United Kingdom. She's passionate about the standards and competencies that people who are offering mindfulness hold. And when I first met her, we ended up in a long conversation about the question, what is it that actually defines a mindfulness program? Where are the guardrails? And as mindfulness continues to grow in popularity, the question about maintaining standards really comes to the fore, um, but it's also complicated. Now, whose standards are we measuring? How are we assessing this? As mindfulness continues to grow in popularity, the question about maintaining standards really comes to the fore. But it's also a complicated question because whose are the standards that we're going to be assessing programs by? And Rebecca is someone who's really grappled with this question. And for that reason, I thought it'd be great to bring her on the podcast and speak specifically around her work and mindfulness and trauma. Rebecca's been practicing meditation for over 25 years and wrote a fantastic book on distinctive features of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. She's also generous and warm-hearted, and it was really interesting to talk to. So without further ado, I bring you Rebecca Crane. Well, Rebecca, thanks for being on the podcast. Great. It's lovely to be here with you, David. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it for months. And I met you about, I think, 10 months ago now, in South Africa. Yeah, amazing conference. It was a very um, inspiring and uh, moving event. Yeah, I don't think we've talked in person since then, but mm. you know, one of the ways into that conference, when I talked to the organizers, they said, you know, here we're doing a mindfulness conference in South Africa and we, we really can't be um, having a conference on mindfulness without talking uh, about trauma and best practices. Mm. And that was my introduction. And then I met you there and you gave this incredible talk one of the mornings that was really impactful. And what I saw was you really taking a stand uh, over your whole career around um, certain teacher competencies around mindfulness. The, mm. As the field is changing so rapidly, this was um, something that you were really shining a light on and bringing attention to. And I noticed for hours after your talk, people were really engaged in conversations about it. Like, well, what are the mm -hmm. competencies that we should hold and how do we think about mindfulness programs? I just wanted to start by asking if you could talk a little bit about why why do you care about this? What? How is yeah. it? that you came to research this topic and, and why are you so passionate about it? Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, it really has been the defining theme of my engagement with this work. And I think on a, on a very personal level, I was, you know, from the very beginning, by nature, I was very questioning of my capacity to do this work. Like, who am I to be doing this work? Mm -hmm. So it was a very personal theme. And it was also a theme. So we, um, the, our center here in Bangor, emerged out of the work that Mark Williams had been leading. Uh, so he, he, the first MBCT trials were, were held here in Bangor and there was a lot of energy that emerged from that trial and the Bangor Centre for Mindfulness Research and Practice really came out of that interest that people had in wanting to train to teach. Hey, Rebecca, can you define MBCT for the folks that um, don't know it? Sure. So mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So the first trial of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was published in 2000. Mm. And that was a three-centre trial that was, um, so Bangor, where I am in North Wales in the UK, Toronto in Canada, where Zindel Siegel was, and Cambridge in the UK, where John Teasdale was. And so this was my entry point into mindfulness. I already had a personal practice, but and I was working uh, locally in community mental health. And this work that Mark Williams was leading at the university at Bangor around mindfulness as a potential um, way of supporting people to stay well, who had a vulnerability to recurrent depression, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just really caught my interest um, because it was bringing together something that was very personally significant to me, the practice of mindfulness with my work in the world. 
you were working as an occupational therapist for a while, is that right? I was. Yeah. yeah. So I was yeah. an occupational therapist and a counsellor. But the primary work I was doing was working with long-term survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Mm. Um, so a lot, you know, very close-up work with with people with um, long long-term trauma histories. Wow. So yeah. So that that work. So it was really during the middle 1990s onwards that Mark Williams was developing a. A, a teaching group locally here in Bangor, and I was part of that. And we were being asked to start to train, and we felt hugely unprepared to do that. And we we reached out to colleagues in at UMass, so John Cabot's in Centre at UMass, and they were incredibly generous in their sharing with us. And um, several of the t- teachers from there came over to Bangor during 2000 and 2001 and then Ferris Obanowski and Melissa Blacker and Pamela Erdman um, came regularly. There were some regular connections over a period of um, 10 years really where they were supporting us to develop our skills as trainers. Mm. But really one of the central questions for us is how do we know that we're skilled to be offering this into the world and who, you know, we're just starting out with a centre, who gets to teach within this centre and how do we know that they have the appropriate capacities and if we're training people, how do we know what are the core skills that we're training people in, what's, what's, you know, what's the appropriate training methodology. So we were really starting from the ground up with asking quite basic questions about ourselves and the work we were doing and make, you know, really wanting to know that the capacities we had and the methodologies we were choosing were on the pulse of actually what was needed. Mm. So this question of what are the skills that are needed to, to bring this work alive in the world in, in ways that are, are safe and meaningful and transformative for people was was just like an almost like a koan, like a question that you can never answer fully, yeah. but, but that you keep circling around in different ways. Yeah. I think one of the things I didn't realize when you talk about it now is how personal a journey that sounds. Mm. That when I first heard about your focus on competencies, I think there's an understandable aspect of rigor mm. of keeping true to both the field and traditions um, to keep some integrity in the field. And when I hear you talk about it right now, it sounds as much about we want to do or I want to do well by these programs mm-hmm. and these interventions. Yeah. Is that right? It sounds like as much personal yeah. as it did um, a, a systemic. I would say the personal was leading. And, and inevitably, when you're in, this is one of the sort of edges of being in the academic world, is the work that you put out into the world is the, is the sort of um, output from a whole personal journey. And sometimes the personal journey is not the piece that gets foregrounded. But actually, that for me was the, the leading piece. I was really growing up as a mindfulness-based practitioner while asking these questions. So, so it was definitely a deeply personal and, and often quite painful journey as I stepped into the world of teaching and training and questioning my own capacities. And mm-hmm. um, interestingly, I did actually make some of that visible in a, a paper, a reflective paper on, on these processes and on my vulnerability as a teacher and my own wobbles. And that became one of the most downloaded papers of mine for a hmm. while. Hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I think it really spoke to a very universal theme that, that, that we feel as teachers. There's something about this work that actually really puts us on the line. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yes. you know, vulnerability and exposure are part of the job description of being a mindfulness teacher. Yeah, this is something you you speak and write about so powerfully about um, the, a lot about embodiment. That it's just as much about what it is that we are embodying as um, teachers or clinicians in mindfulness programs or mindfulness um, informed work. It's as much the who as the what, mm. and it's something I've heard you talk about and also write about from from different angles around the importance of embodiment and, and both your own, as you were just saying, your own um, personal journey here and your mm. own vulnerabilities of just sharing. Like it's as much about our own work. And I think when it comes to trauma, this is a really um, important topic that we're not mm. just doing it from kind of a soapbox uh, yes. or just an, an intellectual place. And I'm I'm wondering if you could talk about what you've learned around embodiment and, and, and how this relates to um, the integrity and competencies mm. that people bring. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. So 
I mean, actually, as you ask that question, what I'm reconnecting to is the the doubt that we felt as a group as we were embarking on this process of seeing if we could develop some ways of understanding competence. And even the word competence mm. felt like a bit of a game changer. So mm. when in the teach in the teachings that my primary teachers were colleagues um, from John Kabat-Zinn's Center, the UMass Saki Santorelli's Center, and you know what they were so skilled at at conveying through their way of being was this deep, authentic integrity, and and passionate embodiment, deep confidence in the power of bringing awareness to experience and their own lived experience of the practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the tension for us was in wanting to honour that, and 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 really um, knowing from our own experience that keeping that at the foreground is is really important. And simultaneously, like like the importance that if we're if we're training teachers, and we and here in Bangor we have a master's program, and within a master's program we we have to inc- include assessment, and so mm-hmm. we ha- we were including assessment of teaching practice as well as more conventional academic assignments that there has to that can't be random there has to be some clear ways of doing that of understanding mm. what the skills are that we're assessing so so the, this this question of you know whether whether it's possible in some way to to understand and operationalize what these skills are was a big don't know for us um, and, mm-hmm. and the way we started was to spend a lot of time and that we did this in collaboration with colleagues at Oxford Mindfulness Centre and the Exeter Mindfulness Centre sitting down together as a group of trainers looking at videos of ourselves teaching and mm-hmm. of our students teaching and stepping back and saying well what's happening what's the work that's happening in this space and from that we developed a whole list of, of you know massive list of all the different pieces of work that the participants and the teachers were doing together, what was really clear was that there, there is some very explicit curriculum elements that are being taught. Mm-hmm. There is a curriculum that's tangible, but mm-hmm. there's also a lot of untangibles. There's a lot of um, what Parker Palmer calls the hidden curriculum. Yes. So this real sense of the that the, the teacher is creating a climate of mindfulness through their way of being so the the inner work of their practice is in some way becoming visible in the space um through how through their behaviors through their tone of voice through the way they're pacing things through how they're responding to the moment the sort of inner connectivity but also the outer connectivity to the space and how that's um, shifting the choices they make, mm. but also this sense that they're all, they're being natural, they're being themselves. So you can't, you know, my way of being embodied would be different from yours because we're different people. Yes, right. So it's it's not like a persona that we're putting on. And thank goodness. Yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> so we're not becoming sort of automatons. So this has been a, it has been, and it's an ongoing theme of you know of really exploring. What, what is this embodiment? I love that you, yeah, doing that kind of nuanced work. And then I really appreciate you bringing in the social context element. Mm. Of course, it's going to be different. And it will look different. And I've talked to a number of teachers and I've had this happen myself about feeling like I'm putting on this yes. kind of mindful drone or the pacing. And I think, well, this is what it sounds like or what it's supposed to look like. And I feel you breaking that up and, and being more alive with it. Like we're all going to come from different Absolutely. places nuances but there's embodiment yeah. inside of that and it's individual so it, you know from per, from person to person it's going to change but it's also cultural i i had this really um what what in retrospect was a very funny moment but at the at the time it happened was really awkward mm-hmm. um experience in when i was training with colleagues in in italy mm-hmm. um and i was it was an inquiry workshop and i brought a, brought along a, a few short clips of a teacher uk teacher um, guiding inquiry, and and I shared these clips, and obviously there was a language thing, so my colleague out there was translating, so that broke it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But but the bigger piece, you know, there was a flatness in the room when they after they'd listened to these clips, um, or and watched them, 
and and I was just really inquiring with them and they'd been left really uninspired by her work from our, from our perspective as UK um, British people you know she was very very clear and embodied um, and poised from their perspective she was wooden uh, yes right, <laughs> yeah, right just right. sort of you know there was there was a lack of animation and there was a lack of a sort of um, expressed aliveness and and engagement uh, so it was just really interesting to see the difference between British and Italian cultures yes. and and how that um, was landing with them <laughs> <laughs> well this gets to uh, an, an intersection I was wanting to talk to you about and I know you've spent a lot of time in around the intersection of, of uh, mindfulness programs, culture, embodiment, what are the actual mm. um, structures or what are the goals of the practice? And it gets to one of a, a colleague that both you and I know, or at least I know you met her in South Africa, Paula Ramirez, yes. who was doing work with mindfulness-based stress reduction, the program, um, in, in this case, it was in South Sudan. And she told this story about, you know, being on session three of um, the MBSR curriculum and actually finding that what was being asked for inside of the group that she was working with was some very mm -hmm. different embodiment practices that weren't necessarily mm -hmm. in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And it got to this, this edge of, well, when do we know that a mindfulness program that's been you know studied or written down and tested is still a mindfulness program mm -hmm. and when can we be more flexible or creative and i feel like this is a tension that you spend a lot of time in and one of the ways one of the metaphors i've heard you use in this paper that you led and co-wrote is around the weft and the warp yes um, of with, with the loom and i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this tension between the weft and the warp and how you're thinking about that i guess it's now a couple mm -hmm. years out from that paper, uh, and how are you? How are you thinking about? Well, both what is it, and how are you thinking about that tension these days? Yeah, this this is a very central theme that that feels really important for us to uh, examine. Because on on the one hand, it is you know I, I feel very passionately about the integrity of MBSR, for example, and MBCT and other MB programs. Mm that they have an integrity and they've been so exquisitely well thought through and, and each element of the curriculum segues into the next element. This is a sort of foundational building block um, through the whole program and it, it does just unfold itself in really beautiful ways. Mm. And I really um, respect those curriculums and, and honour the hours of careful thought that has gone into creating them. Mm. So... I do think there's an there's an importance of about fidelity to those programs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Simultaneously, I also know that MBSR isn't the answer to everything, and that that actually there's there's there is a sort of there's a DNA that one can take from these programs, um, and. Uh, and it, and actually, it's an absolute necessity mm -hmm. to to skillfully evolve programs to fit particular contexts and cultures and and needs that are being expressed in different places in different moments. Mm. So so there's so what we were attempting to do with that warp and weft paper was to see if we could tease out what what are the um, essential elements. So we, we express these as the warp, so the metaphor being a piece of cloth that has sort of vertical um, threads that run through that are absolutely integral to the, um, to the coherence of that piece of cloth, to keeping it solid and, and intact. And, and, um, and then woven through that is the weft elements, which are what the sort of more variable elements that are, are what we, we bring alive, particular practices and forms and cultural adaptations that are needed to bring the, the, the program alive in a yes. particular culture or context. Yes. So, so that, that was in a way, a, a f you know, I, I see it as a work in progress. I don't see that, pa that paper as a kind of definitive end of the story, but it was our sort of collective exploration and actually writing that paper took several years of mm -hmm. conversation between the, the, the co-authors there. Well, I think it'd be 
you know, in a moment, I'd like to talk to you more about trauma and how you're seeing mm-hmm. the relationship between trauma and mindfulness programs. Because I think this is this gets to some of that tension and the both the innovations and then what you said about the fidelity. Yeah, and that mirrors something that I experienced here in North America growing up, where it seemed like the West Coast or almost people that were um, had sat and practiced in traditional um, Buddhist teachings who had been deeply influenced by Buddhism and um, mindfulness practices, there were some people that just seemed to gravitate more to the West Coast, this is a very gross generalization, Mm -hmm. who were more, and if I have the metaphor right, it would be more the weft, who would be more in the creative, (laughs) if I'm right, more in the creative, like, let's talk about... um, Let's bring in this modality, such as yeah. like holotropic breath work, or you know, they were very exper- <laughs> you know, experimental. Right. Whereas there were others that, and often in the East Coast, and who had a deep fidelity, and I yeah. respected that so much. And as you said, this seems to be an ongoing tension um, mm-hmm. in life and in mm-hmm. different fields around mindfulness and meditation. I um, wonder if you could talk about what is your assessment in the moment about that tension. And I know here you are in Bangor in the UK, and I, I'm not particularly sure about the the different tensions that you might be navigating, but I know that you talk to many people in different communities. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm just wondering, where do you see, how do you see that playing out these days? And, and what's your overall assessment? I mean, I, I could talk about this from a research perspective, but also from a practice perspective. So from a research perspective, um, what, what, you know, there was a lovely paper that uh, Zindel Siegel and Sona Demidjian did, um, offered out into the world a few years ago, where they did a whole mapping of the research that's happened, uh, taken place to date on NBCT and NBSR. And one of the kind of big vulnerabilities that they were expressing and um, that they found from that mapping was that there is um, a lot of one-off pilot studies of different adaptations of MBCT or MBSR that haven't gone anywhere. And there's a smaller thread of research that has gone to a really robust level where we there's, you know, so MBCT for depression and MBSR in certain other population groups. So, that's a vulnerability for the field if if we get too broad too quickly but uh, but on the other hand what comes to me really frequently as a leader of a center of um training teachers is that actually it's very hard to be an mbsr teacher at the moment in terms mm-hmm. of getting getting people to sign up for the course and that Mm -hmm. people are needing to be creative to make it work for them. Um, And a lot of that is about actually close in grassroots community work. Um, So really tailoring to different communities and being sensitive to what the particular needs of a particular Mm -hmm. group of people are. Mm -hmm. And I I really honour that that work is needed and uh, necessary. So what we say to our students now is, train in MBCT and or MBSR because these will give you a really good basis from which to know the depth of this work and you mm-hmm. may well teach that, those programs but um, and we do train people in how to adapt skillfully. Um, you, you can also be informed about how to offer to a group of single parents um, four sessions on, on uh, mindfulness over, over you know, in a community center over four weeks or whatever, you know, so that they, they have the skills to be able to tune to particular needs. Yeah. Yeah. So I think both is important, but it's not, it's, it's actually not easy to make it work as an MBSR teacher in truth. Yes. Well, that seems as good a time as any to, to ask you about, trauma and traumatic stress mm-hmm. and and what you you know here you are um, leading this program at Bangor and training teachers and it's a conversation that I know has been mm-hmm. um, you know in the field and then is becoming more prominent in in recent years to look at specific populations and absolutely people like um, Trish Magyari who's been doing a lot of research and and they're starting to be more grounded research around working with um populations who've experienced trauma and then even inside of that of course it's so complicated of those that mm. have experienced you know developmental trauma or, sh- or right. more acute or shock trauma so 
complicated conversation and one we could have and we will be having, I'm sure, for a long time. But would you know? I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your overall um, assessment of where we are right now um, mm. in the field around mindfulness programs, our ability to offer programs, as you said, safely to mm-hmm. people who are struggling with trauma. Um, yeah. And then I'd love to ask you too also about how do we best research this and how do right. we you know, be in best practices that aren't just you know, kind of the flavor of the week, but really try to start grounding a methodology and, and do that well over time. So I'm just wondering if we could start with your overall mm. assessments of the field at this point. Yeah. I mean, one of, I've just hugely appreciated the work that, that you've particularly majored on. And, and as you were saying, people like Trish McGarry and, and, and there's others have, um, and in really drawing out the trauma sensitivity piece so explicitly and so exquisitely. Mm. I mean, it, what it feels like your work has done is made explicit threads that were in in our thinking, but kind of not quite so visible. You, mm-hmm. So you've kind of really made them visible. So, so you know, right from the beginning, the first trial that Mark led and then the, the subsequent trial that I was a trial therapist on that he led after he moved from Bangor, he went to Oxford and led a trial for people uh, who, had, who had recurrent depression but who were also suicidal, mm-hmm. had um, experienced suicidality as part of that, their depression. Mm-hmm. And... So there was a lot of examination in both of, in all in these contexts of how do we make this work safe for people and how do we tune the practices and the ways that we're holding people and the work we do both in and around the sessions to enable people to engage um, in ways that are uh, safe and productive for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the. It was very much in there. And, the, and of course, the fight, one of the key findings from that second trial was that MBCT um, is most effective for people who have experienced childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so there, there's, there's evidence and, and actually other, other MBCT trials are, are underlining that finding that the most vulnerable groups are the, the groups that are most helped by MBCT, but also evidence that actually... We, the, the people who are most likely to be helped by MBCT are also the ones who are most likely to drop out oh, of the wow, course. Wow. So there, there was work that Catherine Crane at Oxford did before we'd actually started on the, the, the main part of the trial that, that Mark mm-hmm. was leading, really looking at attrition from the MBCT course and, and um, working both in, in qualitative interviews, but also looking at examining the the profile of people who dropped out to see what you know what was distinct about them, and and it, as it turned out, there were people who scored most highly on rumination and most highly on avoidance. And at that point, I don't think there would have been a trauma uh, a trauma assessment, but I would imagine that they those were all people who had trauma histories as well. And in the next, in the trial that was rolled out, there was a, tra- a childhood trauma questionnaire that was instituted, and people who scored highly on that um, had had the most were most helped by MBCT. The psychoeducation arm of the trial didn't help them as much as MBCT did. So there was definitely something in the mindfulness arm that was supporting those people to stay well, but. Yeah, so, uh, you know, these themes have been present in our development um, over time, but it's definitely becoming kind of more crisp and clear through the work that you've been doing. And um, so we've, we're have we being a lot more explicit in, the, in our training processes. And your book is, a, is a essential on the essential reading list for our trainees. Um, so there's, there's, you know, we're we're really embedding the sort of core practices that that you you recommend through your book into how we train our teachers. I have a couple different questions here, mm. and uh, I'll, I'll pause on the on the one about. I'd like to talk to you more about. Well, what do you? Where would you? Where would you like to see research going 
around um, mindfulness programs and trauma in particular. Mm-hmm. And if you had, you know, a vision for the next five, 10, 15 years where it could mm-hmm. go. And given that you have so much expertise around uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and I mm-hmm. also just didn't know that you had spent so many years working with people who'd experienced child sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And, and given what you just said about the, these positive outcomes that happened with MBCT mm-hmm. and earlier childhood trauma, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk for a moment about um, why do you imagine that is? What yeah. is it that's supporting? Because I think MBCT, I haven't got the chance to talk about it to as many MBCT people on the podcast, and so I'm thrilled to have you here. And there's some folks who, who won't uh, I've worked with MBCT, but I would love you to talk about mm-hmm. where you see the benefits and what you think might be happening um, for people on their on their path. Yeah, well, I I think that we you know the truth is we don't completely know. So, right. so what I'm right. saying is a hypothesis. Sure. Um, but but you know what our sense is, and this you know when we talk to participants about their experiences. You know what the so in that trial, people were being randomised to three arms. One arm was treatment as usual, and then there was two um, active um, interventions. One was the MBCT with the with the the practices and the home practice of meditation, and the other was a psychoeducation, which included all the elements of MBCT except the actual meditation practices. Mm-hmm. So we were we were all the sort of principles about being kind to yourself, learning to be kind to yourself, learning to take a pause when things feel difficult, um, le- psychoeducation about depression and despair and the challenges of low mood and stress. Um, we're all in the mix of that that group, but we, mm-hmm. they, we weren't actually doing the methodology of training them in meditation practice. Mm-hmm. And my, you know, what our hunch is is that the, the the meditation practices do give people the training ground for learning. It's a sort of exposure piece about learning to be with what feels intensely difficult, intensely toxic thoughts and emotions. Yeah. And learning that actually that in that although they feel incredibly dangerous, they're actually they're not in this yes. moment yes. while I'm here. Yeah. I remember one man saying to me in week eight, I feel like you've been teaching us to put our hands in the fire and we should have got burned. But actually I've discovered that that this fire doesn't burn my hands in the way that I thought it would. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Mm. I really appreciate what you just said about, and you talked about this at the beginning of our conversation, of really the healing power of attention and awareness. Mm. And mm. that story that you just told of someone who realizing, oh, I can I can be with this. Mm. And one of the tensions I've been hearing from people and have been in conversation with some teachers who are saying, let's not go too far away from just the core, the power, the foundational power of being able to be with our experience. And we can add on, uh, it can go so far as where it becomes actually just a psychotherapeutic intervention. There's so many powerful things that we can do besides just sitting and being with. And um, was having a back and forth with Tara Brocker on this. And she said, let's Mm -hmm. not forget about how the Mm -hmm. potential healing power of learning to be with our yes. experience, especially when it's difficult. Yes. And so I'm wondering how you feel about this constant um, kind of uh, movement towards integrating other really intelligent and useful methodologies and practices around trauma, for example. And then that just the, the, the I'd say the almost like the bare attention or awareness practices that we're employing and that tension mm. between the two and and how to do well by that. It just seems to be in the space right now, this this grapple. And I'm wondering how you yeah. think about that. Yeah. I I mean in a way that tension that tension has always been there. But but absolutely I you know I think that these new understandings about how to be more sensitive around trauma adaptations in a way bring them to the fore. Mm-hmm. Um, because there is the risk that we become almost too cautious and yes, we, yes. we teach people ways of kind of modulating things when things feel difficult 
um, that that actually don't enable them to build that confidence that that they they can uh, find a place of ease in the midst of what really doesn't was feels intensely uneasy. Yes, when one yes. of the the work the work with people who've experienced suicidality in the past, and this this was Mark Williams' thread of re- research right through his his working career. Um, mm-hmm. was in a way the possibility so so for somebody who's at risk of suicide it actually is sort of almost like microseconds that matter that that mm-hmm. you we're in a way we're um supporting them to learn that actually hanging with their experience just for a few moments in a, you know in a few moments time it may well feel different Mm-hmm. And the level mm-hmm. of urgency that the intense distress that that you know when that comes that the urgency mm-hmm. that comes with it is is so powerful that it feels like every cell in the body is screaming out to do something to to get some relief from this mm-hmm. so the power of the practice is in a way to to discover the analogy we sometimes use was if you were caught out in on on a high mountain when the blizzard comes in and actually it's too dangerous to move because you don't know where the cliff edge is and mm. so we're one of the things we do is get out of our rucksack a bivy bag and we just hang out there in the storm and mm. and keep ourselves safe in the midst of it so I guess it's the it's this is the tension of how, you know how to you know whether we're using the practices to get out of the storm or stay in the storm. Mm. Yeah, and and I, there's a wisdom to knowing. You know, I love the work that 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 you know the window of tolerance um, understanding of of actually enabling people to have a place to have the build the skills to be able to restabilize, so they have some choice about that. Yes. Um, before yes. you then do the work of turning towards, explicitly turning towards difficulty. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's a sort of question of timing and building blocks and what's appropriate at what moment of the learning journey. Exactly, yes. Yeah. I feel like we could hang out here for a long time mm-hmm. around this this relationship between, um, uh, uh, maybe we could call it like exposure Yes. Um, and when to build a resource or this such a powerful story about when yeah. to be in the bivy be in the bivy sack uh-huh. and i really appreciate that you that you brought up avoidance or that it's mm-hmm. not we have to be careful about not training the people that we're working with in if 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 and when things get difficult to uh, automatically move away though mm-hmm. sometimes that might be the right move Indeed. for them in the moment it may be really skillful yeah so could you um say uh, if because you work with teachers, if you had a teacher that came to you and said, "You know, Rebecca, honestly, what happens to me um, if I'm on now that I've been watching videos and I'm reflecting on me as a teacher mm. is I notice that when things get difficult or challenging, mm. I steer people away mm. I, to more towards the sunshine, mm. or uh, I'm scared about them staying with difficulty because they might get hurt or overwhelmed. Mm. How what would you recommend to a teacher who says, I, yeah, I am practicing avoidance. I, I am starting to see that I'm not trusting the power of awareness. Yeah, I mean, I would just be really delighted that they're bringing that as an inquiry because <laughs> right. that's, so there's a level of awareness that comes with that, and and there's yeah. this, you know this is why supervision is really important, so that so yes. that teachers do have spaces where they can come and bring their vulnerabilities, and and actually, if a teacher never brought that question, then one might wonder. Because I think we all meet that place of actually feeling like I haven't got the capacity in this moment to hang out with you in this difficult space and I need to retreat. And that, yes. that can be a really wise thing to, for the teacher to do, to refine their own window of tolerance. Yes, yeah. So, you know, but I guess this really, this comes back to our, our theme earlier in the conversation around embodiment and why we so much emphasize the importance of retreat practice for teachers. Yes. That, that they yeah. have had the chance to discover their own tender places and how it is to use practice to inhabit those places mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that they've they've got a sustained space to play around with that so if you go on retreat for a week you're, you're going to bump meet into you're going to meet some tender places it's not going to be a smooth ride for a yeah. week um, and within the UK, we've made it a sort of good practice guidance that all teachers should go on at least a fi- one five-day retreat each year. 
That's great. And that, that feels like a really important training ground for this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I know that it's um, it's later over in Bangor, <laughs> and I want to take care of your time and day. And um, I just have a couple more questions. And mm-hmm. uh, one would be just your general, you know, I want to, what you said about MBI TAC mm-hmm. um, and your teaching assessment criteria, but anything that you might want to say about, like, how's it going? for you over there these days and um you know you and i have been in conversation around yeah. uh, the trauma element but i'd just love for people to know about that program and your work and 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 how is it going for you over there yeah so so the i mean I, I, to be to be really frank with you i've been pretty bowled over by the level of international interest in the mbi tac and we, we mm. genuinely developed it for a local need um which a uk need which so the yeah. three masters programs in the uk really had this need and then we we shared it out there and it just re- really seemed to catch the pulse of the moment there was actually what we discovered was that others were seeking clarity around these same themes and others had real concerns about the potential for drift and loss of integrity and there were some sort of sort of shared anchor points about you know what are we understanding in terms of what we think skilled teaching looks like and and mm-hmm. sounds like and feels like mm-hmm. so it does seem to be really helping in that arena and we've just developed um, a version of the tool which we'll be sharing soon um, called the MBI TLC, which stands for Teaching and Learning Companion. So, where so the original tool was very much developed for an assessment as an assessment tool, but actually mm-hmm. in practice was mostly has mostly been used um, as a sort of map of the territory of the skills of the teacher. And so we've developed a version of the tool that really majors on that. So it's much more designed to help people reflect on their practice and their mm. skills and and to use it as a sort of developmental tool to that they can use with peers and with supervisors um, as a way to reflect on their building skills in embodiment, building skills in relational, building skills in guiding practices in holding the group, all the different elements of being a mindfulness teacher. And then the other piece that, that we're, we are really reflecting on, very much stimulated by your work, is this whole piece around trauma sensitivity. So, it, you know, it's, it's implicitly in there, but we do want to make it more visible within how the MBI TAC is described. So the version of the MBI TAC that's out there is, is, is as ever a work in progress. We're, our understanding is evolving all the time. So... Mm in collaboration with our colleague Lynn Kerbel, who's been doing this work of developing the MBSR curriculum to be more explicitly trauma sensitive. We're, we're planning to, to do a mapping of that work into the MBI TAC. Um, that, so we'll, we'll collaborate with her over this next year to find ways of expressing that within the MBI TAC. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. That's great. And I, I meant to ask you this earlier, but just given you have your finger on the pulse of so much research and, and really the way that research can inform mm-hmm. best practice, where would you, if you had your um, kind of dream of where research would go in particular around trauma and mindfulness, mm-hmm. because there's so many angles that we could be researching from and building on research, particularly around um, women who'd experienced sexual violence. Yeah, I'm wondering what kind of research studies would you like to be seeing in the field that would inform, um, you know, a TLC over time? Yeah. Well, in truth, there's, there's, we're taking baby steps in this area yes. at the moment. There's, yes. there's very little research on the qualities of the teacher that that really seem to make a difference. Yeah. So almost, you know, there's, there's, there's so many ways in with this, and it, and it would be lovely if more researchers got engaged with this theme. Mm. I would love to see more more research, the classes that are being researched being video recorded so that we could, there could be more work done on looking at the work of the teacher and linking that to participant outcomes mm. um, and really looking at the relational work between the participants and the teacher. And there's different ways that we can do this. So I think it would be lovely to get participants engaged in this too. And and actually, mm-hmm. Willem Kuyken at the Oxford Mindfulness Centre is just beginning to embark on developing a version of the MBI TAC that comes from participant ex- perspectives. So he's mm-hmm. going to be doing a piece of work over time, at, um, bringing participants, mindfulness, MBCT, MBSR participants in focus groups to develop a version of the tool where they can reflect and give feedback to the teacher. 
Excellent. Uh, and that would be really wonderful. And and then to continue to develop our understanding of how to um, assess the skills of the teacher and from a mm-hmm. third person perspective, but also from a first person inside out perspective of the teacher. So triangulating these different perspectives for the teacher's perspective, um, an in- independent observer's perspective, a participant's expected perspective, really are sort of developing more of a nuanced understanding of the the relational work that's happening within mindfulness teaching and how that seems to be making a difference to participants. You know, what, mm. you know, what's, we do know from different research trials that, um, that some teachers get better outcomes than others, but we don't really mm-hmm. understand what, what, what's the, what's the key difference between those teachers who are getting that better outcomes. So there's, it's a really open space. I think it's a really fascinating space. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm struck by the way that you're in you're in such massive questions. Mm. Like the questions that you're posing and researching and asking are they seem like they're just gonna go for our lifetimes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, for the for the better and worse, I guess. But that's um I really appreciate the the research that you're doing. And I think the last question I have for you, Rebecca, is is there anything else that you'd want us to know about um, your work or at Bangor or, or also just your practice. You know, you're someone who's, you've been, I feel very transparent about the way that the depth of your own practice and your, your own um, path over your life has really informed your mm-hmm. inquiry. So, you know, I always get curious to, to leave space. If there's anything I'll say about where your practice is at these days or yeah. the, the questions that you're going to be really grappling with, uh, in the next two, five, ten years. Yeah, well, it, in many ways, I've sort of reached a bit of a transition point. Um, I've, mm-hmm. it, and that's partly to developmental. So my youngest child, I have three children. My youngest has just turned 18. So oh, wow. I'm, I'm sort of entering into a, a, a sort of new phase in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the center that I lead here in Bangor has just been through a, a whole reorganization, which actually has been, has, has worked, the, the, the restructuring that we've um developed is working really well we're now working between the university and a charity that we've created and that's that Mm. is working really well and and in ways that do free me up so um i'm actually taking a month out to go on retreat very shortly um Mm. and part of that is just is is to give myself space to inquire into what's most important in this mm. next period of time. And I'm, I'm really feeling the shifts that are happening in the world context around the climate emergency. Um, and the, actually these questions around trauma sensitivity feel really linked to that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in terms of how we respond to the um, times we're living in, you know, what, what yeah. is a skillful response? Um, so I have, I have quite a lot of questions about, for myself, on a really personal level, about how to use... Um, the time I have available to me to offer into the world in the most skillful way. Um, yeah. But I've, I've actually, the, the, you know, the, where we've been talking today in this conversation is on the pulse of what really brings me alive, of, of you know, of how we can offer awareness practices into the world in ways that that do have traction for communities and people, because it feels like that this is more vital than ever it was before. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, it reminds me of the end of the conference that mm. we were at together. Oh, I don't know well, if you were there or still. I was. That was the most powerful ending of a conference that I've ever been at. Yeah. Do you, do you want to yeah. stare at that? Because I think it has to do with what you just said of our capacity to just be with. Yeah. And do you, do you mind sharing that story? Yeah. So, so um, Mandaza, who was, is a, a native to, I th- actually, I think he's from Zimbabwe. Um, Zimbabwe, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So he guided the ending of the, the conference um, or was invited by Mark Williams, who was who had actually been asked to close the conference. And Mark Williams was up on stage and said, actually, what I really feel I need is for Mandaza to come and, and, um, and hold the space. And Mandaza yeah. came and just sat quietly next to Mark and then started sobbing. And... Um, and I mean, I, I started sobbing too. And, and actually there were, there were just almost the whole room was sobbing. Mm-hmm. So the, there was this incredible um, community of engagement around sorrow, it felt like. But, and, but also re- I, I really felt a really beautiful sense of being together in that, in community. 
Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I mean, the the whole conference had had really been um, unearthing some very tender themes around historical trauma and the climate emergency and mm-hmm. um, racial injustice and and how can we what what's the place of mindfulness in all of this? What's the contribution that this work can make to these yeah. big questions of our time? Yeah, yeah. And and it felt like that that ending of that conference was one response to that 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 actually we can bear with. Yeah. Um, in community. One of my memories is I still brings tears to my eyes thinking about uh, Mark actually standing, mm-hmm. Mark Williams standing with mm-hmm. Mandaza and. And um, I have this memory of Simon Weitzman, the mm. conference organizer, who's then whose job was to, you know, quote unquote, close with some, <laughs> you know, with some, uh, you know, thank yous, and and that Simon just um, got up there and and basically rang the bell yeah. and said, which I thought was a moment as a white South African person, you, mm. you know, I think there could have been some shaping about, well, we need to tie this up in a bow. And instead for Simon to have the, I feel like Mm. that was the embodiment piece is he had the embodiment to not try to get away from the grief that had been, Mm. that had been opened. And I just, I remember thinking is similar to what you said, this, that felt like a moment of community where the practice helped us be with what was sometimes too much to bear. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was an honor to share that with you, and I was so yeah. excited to get to meet you um, there. Mm. And it's it's meaningful for me to get to you know come back and connect with you voice to voice. I guess ten months later now, yeah, in a, a new decade. I'm really excited for you to get to be going um, on this on this period of it sounds like a retreat or a shift. And I'll yeah. be very excited to connect back up with you on the other side to hear <laughs> what reflections you have about what's needed. But uh, mm. so I appreciate your work. Thank you for all the well, all your leadership. Thank- and, and uh, you know, right back at you, really, really deeply appreciating the, your work and and it, and how you've so explicitly linked trauma sensitivity to social justice. That feels so critical and so needed. Um, so it, it's uh, yeah, just deeply appreciate the work you're doing, and we're so glad that that we can point our students towards a such a a, a a wonderful body of work that you're developing and and the the online engagements that you're offering out into the world are, are so valuable to to this community thanks rebecca appreciate yeah. it okay hmm. well be well and we'll talk again soon indeed indeed go well that brings us to the end of this episode of the trauma sensitive mindfulness podcast Thanks for listening, and I also want to thank Rebecca for coming on the podcast. If you have any requests of people that you'd like us to talk to or topics you want us to cover, please let us know at support at davidtrelevin.com. And we're also open to any general feedback about the podcast. We know this is a, kind of a niche and specialized topic, and we're always really excited to be in connection with those of you that are listening. So thanks again for taking the time, and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Mm-hmm.